and that you are here, Lord, and that your power uh, rest upon this service, Lord, and that you would grant me the ability to be able to proclaim your word, not my word, but your word. Lord, bless the listeners this morning, the family of God. Open their hearts, Lord. Give them an ability, a a keen sense to be able to hear what's preached today, um, that they would uh, hear the word and the word would be grafted into their DNA and they'd be able to live upon the bread of life throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning of chapter 12, Abraham gets the call from God to leave his country and his people. Even his father's house, which is very significant, by the way. All the things that would give a young man his identity, he had to turn away from and turn to God and trust God with his entire life and go to a land which God himself would show him. But on the flip side, what he receives from the Lord is a life now given to God, used by God, blessed by God, and given a name that would be great. Sounds like a good trade to me. Basically, in essence, it's what Christ says to his followers today when he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But Abraham need not worry because the very God who created him will also be the one who directs him the one who leads him, the one who loves him, the one who enables him, the one who protects him, and ultimately the one that always provides for him and who at the end of his life will accept him into his glory. As the psalmist says in 32.8, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eyes. Hebrews Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, we read that Abraham came to a place called Bethel, which actually means the house of God. He then built an altar, and the Bible says he called upon the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 13, it says, And Abram, on his return out of Egypt with his wife and everything that he had, he journeyed back to where? To Bethel, to the place where his tent had at the very beginning. To the place, as the Bible says, of the altar, which he had made there at first. And there Abraham once again called upon the name of the Lord. And this morning, I want you to see the significance in this reality, this place of the altar, this place where it says Abraham himself had constructed himself an altar unto the Lord. We're at the beginning of his journey. This is where it all began. 
And then on his return from Egypt, this is where he landed, showing the significance of this very place, Bethel, this place of the altar, this place of where it would really show where he went at the beginning, where we too as believers need a place to start over. We need that altar of God. Each and every one of us in life needs a new beginning. I understand this reality of being converted, where the Bible says in Romans 6, we've been planted in the very death of Christ, we've risen to the new life in Christ. There is a new beginning in this reality of being born again from the old things passing away to the new, but also for the believer on his journey to the celestial city. Okay, There is these times in our lives where we have got to go back to the beginning. Go back to that place where that moment in our lives we came to the altar. We came before the presence of God. We experienced the hand of God for the first time in our lives. Sometimes, you know, we think there's always going to be something better. Some other appetite in our lives is going to replace that appetite that we once had for Christ. But it's times in the Christian life, in our journey, as it was with Abraham, we have to go back to the beginning. And a lot of times what we'll find is that when we go back to the beginning, we find ourselves refueled for the present and ready for the future. And I believe this is what the Lord would have us to examine today. And I want you to notice one thing, that Abraham was never commanded to build an altar. God didn't say, build an altar unto me. No, because the the reality of him constructing an altar was an act of the heart. You see, because when you truly have experienced God, truly come in contact with the true God of the Holy Scriptures, there's going to be a response from one who has been transformed. They're going to need something to do. When you've been changed by God and you've been transformed by God, you're going to have an expression that comes out of that relationship with God. There's no way a person who has truly been touched by the creator of the universe and transformed can remain as business as usual and remain as his past self. There must be a recreation. And when recreation happens in the life of a believer, he will automatically, as a default, have an expression, an outward expression, as his love for God, as it was with Abraham building an altar to the one that he loved. The one that called him out. The one that said, I will make your name great. Multitudes of people will come out of you, both physically and spiritually. You have now a true God-sanctified ambition. You have a true God-ordained purpose. And that purpose, ultimately, was God himself. We must notice as well that Abraham came back twice. And the scriptures tell us that he called. He called upon the name of the Lord. Which really, if you want to study that out deeply, which we don't have a lot of time to get into today, but you study that out, even in scriptures, it says in Genesis that they began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is very significant because it really shows God's elect. 
All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All those who are elected of God will call upon the name of the Lord. Even in Genesis, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. God's elect, we see, even in Genesis, it started to begin. The people began to call upon the name of the Lord. We want to see the foundation, really, and the motivation and the inspiration uh, of, of Abraham, the seedbed of what ignited his passion. And it comes out of verse 12, I mean, so, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country. He says, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Ultimately, we see an ultimate manifestation of that in Christ sending out his apostles to the world to be a blessing to the world and to preach the ultimate blessing who was Christ. In Acts 2.21 it says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.13 says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Joel 2.32 it says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. This is in essence the very predominant feature of the life of Abraham. And as we know, the Abrahamic covenant or the faith of Abraham was really a covenant of faith. It wasn't a covenant of works. It's where we get the gospel. And this is why when the law was read at Mount Sinai, that, you know, um, this whole idea of the Abrahamic blessing was the law was given, as the Bible says in Galatians 3.24, as a schoolmaster to lead them to Christ where they could be justified by faith. The law that was given upon Sinai and repeated in Deuteronomy um, were never instructions for someone to be able to keep in order to be saved. It was always there to point people to the reality of sin. God said that the law was added. Why? Because of sin. And the law was always to drive them to the Abrahamic covenant, which was the covenant of faith, which they should have understood. And the Bible says they didn't understand or they chose not to understand and they twisted the scripture and they turned the law into something that it was never intended to be. As you see Paul rifling out his um, diatribe in Galatians against those who are trying to mingle grace with law. Even Jacob himself in Genesis 28 verse 11 says that he reached a certain place. Do you know where that place was? It was the same place that Abraham came to. That Jacob came to that place. We all know of Jacob's life, right? It was where he saw the stairway to heaven and heard the promise that God gave to Abraham, which is reiterated to Jacob, the same promise, the same experience. And he says, he says this, he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. 
offspring. I am with you, he says to Jacob, and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In Genesis 12, Abraham came to that place. In chapter 13, it says, Then Abraham came to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, to the place of the altar. He had made there at first, and there Abraham once again called upon the name of the Lord. Very significant today. Because I want us as well as the body of Christ to come to that place this morning. To come to the altar of God, who is Christ Jesus. To come to that place where it all began. And for many of us, we need to start over. I'm not saying that you need to erase everything that's happened in your life. That's not what I'm saying. This isn't Freudian theology. This is biblical theology that says that every Christian needs to remember where he came from. And sometimes needs to return there and remember when that miracle happened. I'm not saying every single one of you remembers every point to where you were saved. But what I can say, you can remember those moments in life where you experienced Christ in a way that was miraculous. For me it was, I remember, I remember, I remember moments in my life where to this day, I have to go back there, trample through the brush of my sin and go back to that visiting place, to that place, to Bethel and meet with God and remember what he accomplished for me. And that day he met a such vile, lost, lonely sinner. Three points I want to consider this morning quickly in dealing with Abraham's place and what it communicates to us today. First of all, it reminds us of his promises. For the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Number two, it reminds us of his purpose. And number three, it communicates to us his providence. Let's look at the first one, the promise. The promise. Abraham's promise ultimately was God himself. God's promise to Abraham was ultimately himself. That was his promise. That was his reward. Obviously, physically speaking, we know that the promise extended to to, Abraham. that there was a great nation that would come out of Abraham, both physically, but obviously, as many of us know as Christians, the spiritual element there, the spiritual offspring that continues up until Christ returns. God was Abraham's inheritance. Oh, you're going to a land, you're going to inherit a land, which ultimately, if we read the scriptures, it never really was inherited. There were still Canaanites in the land. There were still those in the land that should have not been there that were left there by Joshua. As you know, Joshua made a pact with them and left some in the land. They were still the defiled people in the land. The point is that it's not the land that's going to satisfy you, Abraham. It's ultimately not the land um, that's going to bring you peace and happiness. 
It's me. I'm your inheritance. For the scripture says to, he says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield in thy exceeding great reward. See, Abraham had to understand this reality that if God is my inheritance and if it's the Lord who is my exceeding reward, then it's not going to be based consequentially on consequences. Your faith is never um, determined by consequence. Do you realize that? It's not determined by your sin. It's not determined by the mistakes that you've made all week long. It's not determined by how rich you are, how wealthy you are, how pretty you are, how talented you are. It's not whether the closest people in your life betray you and walk away or someone dies or you even die, God forbid. It's not consequential. Because our inheritance is God. And if we realize this and we understand this this morning, there's not anything that we can't persevere through if we understand that God is our inheritance. I know I've said this before, but it's worth saying again, uh, quoting from John Piper. So if anybody comes to God for any other reason than God himself, he comes in vain. We come for God. God is our gift. But we only get God through Jesus Christ. But it's permanent. And any consequence, any dehabilitating thing that comes into your life, any form of adversity or tragedy, it's not built, your faith's not built on that. You have God no matter what. Whatever happens, whether in life or in death, you have Christ. It's not going to change. And this should be rewarding to you this morning. That you're not defined by your illnesses. You're not defined by tragedy. You're not defined by your sin. You're defined by Christ. And that's forever. And that's ultimate. You can put a period after that. In Acts 2.39 it says, The promise is for you and your children. And for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In Scripture, the promise of God is the declaration or assurance which God has given in His Word of bestowing blessings on His people. Such assurance resting on the perfect justice and power, benevolence, and immutable veracity of God cannot fail of its intended purpose. Second Peter 3, he says, The Lord is not slacking concerning His promises. Second Corinthians 4, 7 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Do you know what that treasure is? It's not your talents. It's not that you can do this or that. It's Christ. Christ is our treasured inheritance you have this treasured inheritance in earthen vessels okay that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us which will define our purpose our purpose you know one of the worst books ever written is the purpose driven life 
You realize when, when Rick Warren wrote that book, it was really all about us finding our purpose. Now, I don't want to sit there and just bag on Rick Warren. Okay, I just, just don't feel like doing that. But if we don't understand that our purpose in life isn't our purpose, not my purpose, what's my purpose in life? Your purpose in life is to glorify God because your purpose in life is to finish His purpose for your life. Amen. I think if we would come to that reality, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be so anxious and chaotic and confused and irritable because ultimately we are on this planet to serve God and to serve His purpose. Just as He was through with those in whom He purposed to do certain things. When their purpose was up, He took them home. This is why you're invincible until God is through with you. Do you realize that? I don't care if COVID comes to your door. I don't care if illnesses knock on your door. You are not through. You are invincible until God is through with you. I don't care if you run out in front of an army of machine guns. They're not going to touch you until God's through with you. You are invincible until God is done with you. God is in control of your life, full control of your life. Be assured of that. And the purpose is this. And to see Ephesians 1.5, I know um, Brother Ian preached so eloquently through uh, Ephesians 1 a couple weeks ago. But in Ephesians 1 verse 5, he says, He predestined us for adoption as, listen, His sons through Jesus Christ, according to whose good pleasure? To His good pleasure. See, He adopted us not for us. He didn't save us for us. We're not born again so we can just live in pleasure. We are saved for whose pleasure? God's pleasure. We are here to please God. We exist to please God. We are here to bring Him pleasure. We're not here for our own pleasure. I'm not saying it's not pleasurable. Okay? Our Christian existence can be very pleasurable. Being alive can be very pleasurable. But we're not here for that. Our main goal of life, through sickness or death, through whatever may befall us, is to bring God pleasure. Ephesians 1.9 says, And he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Which he, ready for this purpose? For which he purposed in Christ. In him we are also chosen as God's own, having been predestined according to the plan of him, his plan, his purpose, his pleasure, who works out everything by the counsel of his will in order that we, who are the first hope in Christ, would be for the praise of his glory. It's not confusing. It's not confusing. I think once you understand this reality of why you exist in the first place, and there's a purpose to your life. You know why the number one reason people eliminate themselves in this life is because they have no purpose. One of the worst punishments that God put upon a person, Cain, was to live a life without any social contact, without any purpose. Meaningless existence. 
One of the worst forms of punishment that we can put upon ourselves in this day is to have no hope and to think that our lives are meaningless. There's no point to my life. There's no point to my existence. There's no point to anything that I do. It's all meaningless. Nihilism. Nothing matters. This is the seedbed to most homicidal acts. People that believe that there's nothing makes, nothing is worth anything. Meaningless. Life's meaningless. And I'll tell you something. The Christian life can border on being a nihilist, nihilism, and true biblical faith. Because it's in those moments where you feel defeated and hopeless and full of doubt. Don't tell me you've never been there. Then we can fall into the category of thinking our life's meaningless. Means nothing. What's the point? We know it not to be true. But in our lives, at times in our lives, we feel like our lives are utterly meaningless. And we make no difference to this life whatsoever. Whether I'm here or whether I'm gone, it makes no difference. But in God's world, it makes all the difference in the world. Because your purpose for existing is for His glory. And he's designed you that way. And he's purposed it that way. And he's planned it that way. And he receives pleasure from you when you understand that and you live your life according to his way. Your life is not meaningless. Your life is not pointless. It's not a waste. There's no such thing as wasting time. There's a point to your existence. There's a purpose to your life. God wastes nothing. God wastes nothing. God wastes nothing in your life. Those moments in your life where you feel like you've wasted a bunch of time, you've done stupid things, you've made huge mistakes, you've destroyed relationships, or you've been destroyed, those things are not wasted. Those moments where you're lying in your bed and you feel like you can't get up, you can't exist another hour, God doesn't waste those experiences. Those all have meaning. You see, this is how we cope. This is how we live because we realize that our pain has meaning. If you live a life where you think that your pain has no meaning, there's no reason to continue. There's no value in it. If you don't value anything, there's no value to your life. Why continue? If this is all there is, what's the point? But the reality is, there is a point. And there is meaning to everything. There's meaning to your suffering. There's meaning behind all of the tragedy. There's a meaning behind betrayal and rejection. There's meaning behind great loss. Because the meaning is God's. And He's designed it in such a way where we would not cling to this earth. God has made the Christian life in such a way where it would have enough joy to make you stay alive, but enough disaster to make you look forward to the future.
Which brings us to providence, the last point. God's providence, which would really mean the foresight of God. That God knows all things. He's prepared all things. He knows all things. He knows your every move. He knows where you're going. And let me just tell you this so you can rest. God has got your life planned out. I'm not saying just be lazy and go lay on the couch. What I'm saying is that you can trust God with every step of your life. As God told Jacob in Genesis 28, 15, I am with you. I'm not only with you though, okay? Not just with you. I'll watch over you. Okay? Wherever you go. You mean wherever I go, Lord? You're going to watch over me? You mean even when I go there? Yes, even there. But what about here? Yes, even there. That matters no matter where you go. He is watching over you. Through your times of neglect, through your times of despair, through your times of sin, through your times of rebellion, He is there. And He is watching over you wherever you go. But then He says this, I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I know we get to places sometimes in our lives I've been there where you think there's just no way back. (laughs) I've just been through too much. There's just no way. But the Lord promises. He may bring you back there, but he may be back worn and torn, beat up and bloody and muddy, but you'll get back there. It's God's promise. And we know that the Lord Jesus who said, Lo, I am with you always unto the end of the age is with us. It is not the first time that he assured his trusting people of his presence that he'd be with them. He spoke to Joshua as he still speaks to us. I will be with thee. I will not fail thee. I will not forsake thee. Thus he comforted saints of old, the men of God, the prophets, the priests, the kings. This is our highest comfort as we enter into a new year. The Lord is with us. He is on our side. Because why? Because we belong to him. So whatever this year may bring forth, we can be rest assured that we are in his love. Then it will be for our good and for his glory. He'll be alongside of us in every trial, in every test, in every sorrow, in every grief. Let us as the body of Christ cling closer to him. And this is our need. And when the age ends down here for his redeemed ones and he comes to take us home, then we shall be forever with him who was and is forever with his own. This is the glorious goal of our lives. Never-ending fellowship and the never-ending glory with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah said, In chapter 14, 24, the Lord of hosts is sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. I believe divine providence is really a source of great consolation. To know that God's not just with us, but he's watching over us and he's guiding us with his eyes. 
trusting in God's providence, having that resilient optimism, believing that everything will work out in the end, is a biblical view of good theology. God not only created the world, but he governed, but he also governs it and cares for its welfare. Let us recall the place where it all began, shall we? Brothers and sisters, this morning, can you recall? Have you had that transforming experience? I really don't care if you're reformed. It's rather you're transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. Because I've met a lot of reformed people who weren't transformed. And they're the ugliest people on the planet. We need to be transformed by the power of Almighty God. And do you remember when that happened? Can you recall that this morning? Do you have to return there? Any of us need to go back there? Go back to that place? Go back to where that altar was first constructed? Do we need to revisit once again that monument, that place where the old self was destroyed and the new self was rebuilt? I know I need to go there. And you know, I don't really care what anybody thinks about that. Because at the end of the day, throughout all eternity, it's going to matter what Christ thinks. Christ cares more about our humility than he does our pretending. I need to go back. I need to take a walk back to Bethel. Just spend some time there. And gaze into the eyes of Christ. And remember what he did to this vile, old, wicked sinner. And from there, go on. And remember that no circumstance, no tragedy, no fault, no obstacle, no wrecking ball can take me out. Because I don't live by that. My foundation is sure because it's built upon Christ. So please do yourself a favor this morning as you leave this place. Even if you need to go home, go find a place, a place, and come to the altar of God through Jesus Christ. Application quickly. Go back to the beginning. Declare yourself the promises of God. And remember that Christ himself said he is with you and he will never, ever, leave you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning in gratitude, Lord, that we have you as our inheritance. We have you, O God, as the fulfilled promises in Scripture, Lord Christ. Let us just not walk out of here today and just forget everything we heard and just go back to our busy lives and our, and our schedules and, and just, the, just the frantic behavior of the world. But let us remember that we belong to you and you belong to us. And at the end of this life, this short life, and many of us a short, miserable life, we'll enter into the glories of Christ forever. And I ask all this in the blessed and holy righteous name of Christ. Amen, and so be it.